I like things that are obscure and get overlooked a lot of the times. And maybe you do too. Maybe you've got a fishing spot that you love. Nobody else knows about it. Nobody else, you know, and so I'd love to hear about it afterwards, you know, if you're willing to share. But maybe there's a hiking trail that you know is not going to be super crowded, and that's where you like to go, and it's kind of your spot. Maybe there's a book that means so much to you, and you've read it one time, five times, ten times, whatever, but it's not going to be on the bestseller list, or you're not going to find it at the top of some blog article about the best books. My family and I love movies. We watch a lot of movies, and we like movies that, like, we will watch a movie and think this is awesome, and then we'll look at what the critics say, or IMDb, or Rotten Tomatoes, and it'll have, like, a really low score on there, because we like to find these weird, random, obscure movies, and then we'll quote them to each other. And we start to do this game where my brother will answer my question with a movie quote, and I got to figure out what that's from. And I'm like, what is that from? And he's like, well, it's very obvious. This Disney movie we watched when we were four. It's like, how was I supposed to get that? So obscure stuff. Well, because I like obscure things or things that often get overlooked, I am excited to speak on the book of Leviticus this morning. Would you turn to your neighbor and say, yay, Leviticus? Yay, Leviticus, good job, yeah, wow! Aren't you just so excited? I know that this is what you were waiting for. See, here we are at Dallas Church doing a sermon series through the first five books of the Bible, also known as the Torah, or the Torah is probably the correct you know, accent pronunciation. Ben's been going all Hebrew with that, um, and I just grew up calling it the Torah over and over again, and old habits die hard. So I'm going to try and be cool and say Torah, but, you know, I, my pronunciation is probably going to sound like what I am. So uh, now, um, we are here leading up to the book of Leviticus. We have covered Exodus. We have covered Genesis. We actually did those in the other order. We did Genesis, then Exodus, because that's how you're supposed to do it. So I know that you've been waiting for the book of Leviticus. I know that this has been the one that you're so excited for. No. Like, it's, it was really fun when everyone's like, I just can't wait to see what Andrew does with Leviticus, because <laughs> it's kind of a hard one. So we were, as a preaching team, deciding who got to preach on which books, and they were like, you know, we were divvying it up, and I was like, I want Leviticus, and nobody fought me for it. So here we are. Uh, I am pretty excited. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn to the book of Leviticus. And if you open up to uh, chapter 1. Now, I have, in 10 years of teaching the Bible, in youth groups, Sunday school, backyard Bible clubs, being on stage, this is the first time that I have ever done a sermon that is on, just 100% focused on, the book of Leviticus. I have quoted the book of Leviticus many times, I have referenced, but I have never decided to teach the entire thing. And I want to think about why is that? Why is that that the book of Leviticus is so often overlooked? Well, here's one way that I'd say it. Leviticus is one of the first major speed bumps in the Bible. 
Maybe you've done this before. This is a practice that I've done a couple different years in my spiritual journey where I've decided that January 1, I'm starting with Genesis chapter 1, and my goal is to read through the whole Bible, and by the end of the year, I want to be finishing out the book of Revelation. And maybe you've done this where you're like, I'm going to start and read through the whole Bible. So you open up Genesis, you're like, okay, in the beginning, that's a good place to start. Julie Andrews agrees with me. That is a good place to start. So you start out with Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve are there, there's a talking snake, that's pretty cool and interesting. We got some uh, Cain and Abel, there's some murder in that one. You got um, Noah's Ark, we've all seen that painted on nurseries and Sunday schools. Uh, And you just kind of, you go through Genesis, right? You got story after story. And the creator God of the universe is working in the lives of people. There's this guy named Abraham, and his story has ups and it's got downs. And then you've got Israel and Jacob. You've got Joseph. And then you get to Exodus. And Exodus is one of the most cinematic stories in the whole Bible because they keep making movies out of it some of which are good, some of which are not, and some of which have Charles Heston in a bathrobe. So there he is, and you got Moses, and he's all scraggly with his like staff and everything. And you got Pharaoh, he's got all the wealth in the world. He's the most powerful human being that is alive on the face of planet Earth at that time. And Moses is saying, let my people go, because that's how you got to say it if you're Moses. And he's like, we got to get these Israelites out of slavery. They get out of slavery. They get to Mount Sinai. There's 10 commandments. There's a calf. And then there's 20 chapters of very specific instructions on how to make a tent. (laughs) Wow. Isn't that great? And maybe you're like, okay, so Exodus, I had enough invested in the story at this point. I can get through this. I can get through 20 chapters of instructions on how to build what they call the tabernacle, which is just a Bible word meaning tent. Like that's where the tent of meeting where God is going to live. Kind of a big deal that the God of the universe is going to choose to live in a tent with a tribe in the middle of kind of the desert. And now we just look at that. We go, okay, yeah, that's Bible stuff. That's par for the course, right? You got talking donkeys, you got talking snakes, you got God living in a tent. That's how the Bible goes. But let's think about that for a second. The God of the universe is going to come and live with this people. And so they're describing the tent. They're starting out with all this. They start on some laws and you go, okay, once I make it through these 20 chapters, the story will pick up at the next book. And then you get to Leviticus chapter 1. And the story does not pick up. Because let's just be honest about what the book of Leviticus is. The majority of it is Old Testament law code. It's law. Like that's what the word Torah means. It means law or kind of teaching, not quite in exactly the same way as we look at the law codes or, you know, we're not going to sit and read city zoning laws all the time unless you're trying to build a shed or something like that. But So they've got law code for an ancient group of people in the 14th, 15th century BC. Doesn't that sound like what you want to curl up with at at, at nighttime with a glass of tea, you know, after a hard day's work? You were just waiting so you could get home and read 14th century BC legal codes. 
No, like, okay, maybe some of you, like, you're a nerd like I am. That's what that means. Uh, but so there's only two narrative stories in the whole book of Leviticus, and both of them are about people breaking the law codes, not doing what the book is telling them to do, and getting killed over it. Isn't that just an encouraging message from church today? So Leviticus, it's, it is, and this is the way I describe it, it is a little weird and more than a little bit awkward. One of the plans that I had when I was going to start this was just to open up to a random chapter and start reading some of the list of the commands and the things that are in there. And then I realized I don't want to do that because my mom watches this stream. And there are some things in the book of Leviticus that I have zero interest reading out for the internet and for all of you to listen to. So um, there's going to be, this is not a teaching through the book of Leviticus. This is a teaching on the book of Leviticus. And I would really like to empower you to be able to dig into this on your own. This book, the Bible, is core to who we are as a church, core to who we are as Jesus followers. And the first five books of the Bible have some difficult parts in them. And nobody's trying to convince you otherwise. I'd be lying if I was like, guys, we're going to talk about Leviticus. It's going to be so fun. I'm not going to do that. But here's the deal. Why should we jump into this weird or obscure book if it is that difficult? And a lot of it has to do with the place that the Bible holds in the life of a Jesus follower. Because we do believe that this book, which is actually 66 documents constructed by 40 authors, three different continents over 1,500 years, which is a huge project that has a lot of diversity to it. And that's one of the great things about the Bible is it is all diverse. You know, you're not going to open it up to every single passage and go, oh, the Lord is my shepherd. Like, this encourages me. Sometimes you're reading about it, and there's like bloodshed and giants and stories, and it's all God's word. This book is the foundation of who we are as we follow Jesus. It's also something that would have been on Jesus's mind. See, the way that the New Testament authors, Jesus and the apostles who write a lot of the New Testament, their brains were steeped in the Old Testament. You ever made tea before? Anybody made tea at home? Can I see some hands? Nobody here drinks tea? Well, not today. It's hot. But like, come on. Like at some point during the winter, you know, you put the bag of tea in the water and it steeps and it soaks. And sometimes I leave my Earl Grey in there for like 10 minutes as I go do something else and I come back to take a sip and I'm like, whoa, that's really strong. But that was the mind of Jesus and the apostles. It was steeped in the imagery of these first five books of the Bible. And so we can't just say, well, I'm going to follow Jesus and I'm going to start with Matthew and in the New Testament, read from Matthew all the way to Revelation and then just repeat and never ever go into the other two thirds of the Bible, like we, we've got to be, in order to be a people of this book, we have to be at least able to walk around in and be familiar with the Old Testament. So that's our big point in this series through the Torah, is hoping that we would have some confidence 
And as a church family, we'd be able to walk through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, which may be your win in this series is being able to say Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. But to be familiar with it. Because over and over again in the New Testament, John the Baptist is going to say that Jesus is the Lamb of God. Well, why does that matter? Because Leviticus is going to teach us about what the sacrifice of a lamb is in the Jewish culture. And if we don't read Leviticus, that doesn't make sense. Paul is going to say, let's put on Christ like a robe, like a new piece of clothes. That's our identity in the same way that a priest in the Levitical times would put on a robe and all of a sudden they're not representing themselves anymore. They are representing God. When we have communion every single week, we are remembering a feast and and part of what happened. And Jesus was using the Passover to uh, help us remember him. And so in order to get the New Testament, we got to at least be able to walk around in the Torah. So let's dig in. Let's go ahead and pray. And then we're going to keep going through Leviticus. Father God, we give this time to you. We pray that your spirit would would speak in our midst. God, your word would be alive and active and that we would see your word in a new light and be confident walking around as we read the book of Leviticus. It is in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. So the story so far, we talked about Genesis, we talked about Exodus, and the fact that the Israelites are at this point when they get the book of Leviticus, they are at Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, they build the tabernacle where God is going to live, which is a huge deal. And then if you look at Exodus chapter 40, verse 34, it says, And then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord had filled the tabernacle. So we all of this work, we do all of this work to build out a tabernacle so we can meet with God. And Moses, who is the best of them, cannot go in and meet with God. So then you need the book of Leviticus. Leviticus number one, the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from, notice that he spoke to him from inside the tent of meeting. And then we're going to jump in and get all of the laws about how to use this tabernacle. Bible teacher Marty Solomon says it this way, the book of Leviticus is the owner's manual that lives in the glove compartment of the tabernacle. This is what you need to know in order to use your tabernacle. And here's the interesting thing. Leviticus is structured differently than you and I would write a story. If you and I write a book, we start at the beginning, right? And then You've got like the middle and the story picks up and the big crescendo, the most important part, we are going to save it for which part of the story? The end. That's where we're going to put it. That's where, you know, oh, that's who done it. Oh, that's all the point we're trying to make. Right at the end of the story. Leviticus doesn't do that. It puts it in the middle. And and we're going to play this video from the Bible Project, which is an animation studio in Portland that does really high quality um, biblical work. And this video just really unlocked for me um, what 
is in the book of Leviticus. So we're going to go ahead and just play this. And you guys in seven minutes are going to become experts on Leviticus. Let's go. The book of Leviticus. We know you've been avoiding it because it's weird. So let's fix that. Now remember, the story of the Bible began with humans in God's presence, but they were banished because of their rebellion. However, God wants to be in relationship with us, so he chooses one family that he will use to restore the world back into his presence. And so God's presence comes to dwell in a tent right in the middle of Israel. And that's great. But it creates a problem because it's so intense that Moses can't go in and other priests who enter inappropriately, they die. Well, wait, if God's presence is good, how is it all of a sudden dangerous for people? So think of it this way. God's presence is like the sun. It's pure power and goodness. And when something mortal and corruptible gets close to such pure power, it's destroyed. And so the word holiness is used in Leviticus to describe God's pure and powerful presence, which like the sun is both good and dangerous. So the point of Leviticus is to show how corrupt Israelites can live near God's goodness without being destroyed. Now, in the book, there are three ways for how this is all going to work out, and these are going to seem strange to you, but just hang in there with us. The first one is rituals. The second is this idea of the priesthood, and the third is a bunch of purity laws. Now, the book is broken up into seven sections, and each solution is explored in two sections of the book. The rituals are here, the priests are here, and the purity laws go here. Now, the first solution, rituals, involves a lot of animal sacrifices. And so Leviticus begins with detailed instructions for how to make these sacrifices. Some are ways of saying thank you to God, and others are simply ways of saying I'm sorry. And here at the end of the book, there are some more rituals. These are about observing sacred days and festivals. They're all celebrations that retell some part of the story of how God rescued Israel and set them apart from the nations. The second solution to the holiness problem has to do with priests. You see, being directly in God's presence is really dangerous. So he appoints priests as special representatives who can go into his presence on behalf of others. So in this section, we have a story about how the priests are ordained into the priesthood. And then this other section explains the set of higher standards that the priests have to live by because they work so closely to God's presence. The third solution in the book is all about purity laws. And this is by far the hardest thing to understand. For example, in this section, we're really concerned with knowing whether you're clean or unclean. Or another way of saying that is being pure and impure. Here's what we need to know to understand this. When you're in a pure state, you can be near God's presence. When you're in an impure state, you can't. And so it was really important for Israelites to know what state they're in at any given moment. So the first thing we have is a list of pure and impure animals. Yeah, this list of animals is divided up by where they live. So on the land, in the sea, in the air. And the text is just not clear about why certain animals are impure or why touching or eating them makes you impure. What is clear, however, is that avoiding these creatures will set Israel apart and it will remind them that God's own holiness should affect every part of their lives, including what they eat. After the food laws, we get a lot of random rules about things like skin disease, touching dead bodies, what to do with bodily fluids. But they're not random. All of these are things that the Israelites associated with life and death, which are sacred things because God is the author of life. Okay, 
But simply coming into contact with these things makes you impure? They do, but we have to keep in mind that it's not wrong or sinful to be ritually impure. You just wait a few days, take a bath, offer sacrifice, and you're pure again. What is inappropriate is entering into God's presence when you're in an impure state. Now, there's more purity laws over here in this section. Yeah, these focus on Israel's moral behavior. So these are laws about social justice, healthy relationships, having sexual integrity. Living by these laws will make Israel into a morally pure people who can live near God's presence. Those are the three solutions. Now, you've probably noticed that they surround the very center of this book. And it's here that we find a really important ritual called the Day of Atonement. Yeah, so Israel's a big tribe now, and odds are there's a lot of sin happening that goes unnoticed, that people are not dealing with. And so one time a year, the priests would take two goats, and one of those goats is killed, and its blood is carried right into God's presence where it symbolically covers or atones for Israel's sin. Yeah, that's kind of weird. Well, the meaning of the sacrifice, it's explained in the next chapter, where God says that the blood of a creature is its life. And so this goat's life is offered as a substitute. It's receiving God's punishment for Israel's sin so that the people don't have to. That leaves the second goat. Yeah, the priest puts his hands on it, and then he confesses all the sins of Israel. It's like he's placing the sins on the goat. And then that goat gets cast out forever into the wilderness. It's called the scapegoat. Yeah, I've heard that word before. Yeah, it's this very powerful image of how God is graciously removing Israel's sin. But let's be honest, sacrifices in general seem so barbaric. We have to remember that in the ancient world, sacrifices were the main way of buying favor from the gods. But the problem was that those same gods, they're unpredictable, they're fickle, you never know if they're going to ignore you or they're going to turn on you. And so it's in this cultural setting that we see Israel's God as totally different. He does get angry about human corruption, but it is never arbitrary and he loves people. So he provides this clear way for Israel to know with confidence that they are forgiven and that despite their corruption, they are safe to live near his presence. And so that makes the book of Leviticus actually a revolutionary statement in its day. So that's Leviticus. But Israel's still at Mount Sinai in the middle of the wilderness. They need a place to live. Yes, the land God promised to Abraham. And so the journey to that land is what the next book of the Bible is all about. So Ben will talk about numbers next week. That's a spoiler. Don't even worry about that. But for now, um, you're now all experts in Leviticus. So you can just give yourself a pat on the back. Good job. You're all experts because you watched a whole seven-minute video about what's in Leviticus. No, this, I think, is just a really good starting point. Um, and maybe you're in, what you're trying to do in this series is read through the Torah and all of these books. Maybe you've done that before, maybe you haven't. But one thing that just really helped me as I was prepping for this was reading those, those sections together. So I read kind of those sacrificial ones and then went into the purity laws and the priest and then into the Day of Atonement and it just really opened it up for me, kind of helped it speak to me in a new and different way. But I also want to acknowledge some of the questions and the trickiness as we get into the Old Testament law. There's more than just Leviticus. In Numbers and Deuteronomy, 
it also goes into more detail about the do's and the don'ts. And how many of you just love to get a whole list of do's and don'ts every day? No, no, there's a couple of you. But like, there's a couple people pleasers who are excited about that. But most of us were like, no, I don't want the do's and the don'ts. But what God is doing in that is he's giving these people clarity. He's giving them the list of how to do the right things to be his people and to be a part of his presence. And it has been helpful for me to think through, okay, so this is a group of slaves in Egypt who just had their whole lives dictated to them. And God brings them out into the desert. And instead of saying, you guys figure it out on your own, he starts to give them some clarity. He starts to give them a path forwards. But I want to ask the question, so as 21st century Americans, how much of this do we have to follow? Like we just said, the Bible's really important. It's the key to following Jesus. But then, you know, we just read about goat sacrifices. And anybody brought a goat this morning? No, hopefully not. Like, please keep it in your car or take it somewhere safe because it's way too hot outside to keep it in your car. But like animal sacrifice is not what we're going to do. So do we actually follow the Bible then? Are we actually people that are, like, are we just hypocrites saying we believe in the Bible and then there's parts of it that we're just going to say, well, eh, but not that part. And eh, but not that part. These are big questions because there's going to be some uncomfortable stuff in the law. There's going to be some uncomfortable things that are going to, with our 21st century presuppositions, we're going to go, I don't know what to do with that. And when the text does that, that's an invitation for us to go, okay, what did it mean to them? What did it mean in that day? What was going on around them that caused God to have those kinds of rules? So we were just, as a little fun exercise before this, making a list of all of the Old Testament laws that I probably broke this week. So we're just going to talk about how Andrew didn't follow the Bible this week. That's a great way to spend a sermon. Uh, no, but so on Friday, I had a burger that had bacon on top of it, and it was good. <laughs> but pigs are unclean animals, so I broke, I broke the Old Testament law. Um, I also had, why is it all, always food? But I also had a pizza. Anybody here have a pizza this week? Anybody have a pizza at all, like ever in your life? Oh, there we go. We got some audience participation. Pizzas. Okay, now you're safe for now, but here's the ki kicker. Did that pizza have meat on it? Oh, I had pizza with meat on it. See, you're not supposed to cook an animal uh, with its, its mother's milk. You're not supposed to have milk and animals at the same time on the pizza. So actually in Israel, you can get pizza that either has meat or has cheese, but you can't get them both at the same time. Okay, my clothes. I'm right now wearing a mix of fabrics. So I am breaking some Old Testament laws. So now I guess I just have to walk off the stage and be done because, you know, this is Dallas Church where your pastors don't follow the Bible. Uh, okay, that, that clip is not gonna be good in the long run. I apologize, okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Ben. Okay. Um, no, but, but let's, let's do some honest work and go, okay, if we love the Bible, but there's a part of it that we're not going to maybe take 
literally, or we're not going to do that today. So are we hypocrites? Well, let's talk about this idea of covenants. If you've got your Bible, it's divided into two sections very clearly. There is the first section called the Old Testament. Hey, good job. And then the second half called the New Testament. Good job. Wow, you guys are getting trained. So uh, now that word testament really just means covenant. And it's talking about an old covenant in the past. And that was a covenant was an agreement. And we've already talked about it's like a contract, except contracts deal with property. Covenants deal with life. And then the new covenant, the big deal and the big difference maker is Jesus. And the fact that we do believe that Jesus was God incarnate. He was God living on this earth, that he died on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago. And when he did, he took the punishment for the sin and the brokenness that you and I have done. And that he rose again three days later and we have life in him. That's the, the deal changer. That is the big thing that makes all the difference. And then we live under this new covenant. And if you read the New Testament, you're going to find a lot of the laws and a lot of the heart of God that is in the Old Testament repeated in the New Testament. Jesus actually says, right, this is a common phrase you've heard, love your neighbor as yourself. Do you know what book that's from? Leviticus. Chapter 19, love your neighbor as yourself. And so a lot of those commands are going to get echoed in the New Testament. But what happens in the New Testament is it's not just Jewish people following Jesus. It is Greeks and Romans and a whole bunch of other inns that, you know, I don't know if I can pronounce all those names, but um, it's a bunch of different people groups. And then they start to focus in on the commands and the teachings of Jesus. So we're under the new covenant. So then why study the old? Well, like we said, there's a lot of those imagery that exists in the Old Testament. And the other thing is when we study the law, we get to know the heart of the lawgiver. We get to see God's heart as we do the difficult work of figuring out what these books of Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy mean for us. For example, one of the laws has to do with how much of your fields you're going you're gonna to harvest. And I know that's what's on many of your minds today, right? How you're going to harvest your fields. But he would say in the Levitical law, you're supposed to leave a corner of it undone, unharvested. And you're not supposed to go behind and pick up absolutely every single bit of grain or grapes or whatever, but rather you're supposed to leave that so that the poor or the orphan or the widow or those who can't care for themselves could come back along behind. And so God is building a system in the middle of this that people are cared for. And we can see his heart, which is to care for people. Now, when we come into contact with some of the things that are hard for us to deal with, the harsh punishments, like I said, there's two stories in the book of Leviticus, and both of them involve people dying because they break the Levitical laws. Isn't that an encouraging message you're going to get from church today? But let's do the work and go, okay, what was the world that they lived in? And, and maybe look at the context. So like nobody was asking these guys, they talked about the priests in the video, the sons of Aaron, 
who decided we're going to jockey for power. We are going to get drunk, walk into the holiest part of the whole temple, right in the front of God and everybody, and we're going to do whatever we want to do. Do you see why God would have a problem with that? Yeah. And then the other story is about someone who's just like a normal guy, just a common person in the people of Israel who decides to blaspheme God. Like he's in a fight with somebody, and instead of like insulting the guy's mom, he decides to start going after his God and saying, this is a pro now this is a problem if we've just established all of these things. And so it's, it's what might be a harsh thing or something that's hard for us to process through. What I think those stories are doing is just saying we all have to follow God. Like there is a reason for everybody from the priest all the way down to the normal person. We need to be a people that seeks after God. And so I'd invite you to wrestle with some of this stuff in Leviticus, some of this stuff in the law. And I'm not going to answer it all for you. I'm not going to give you you know, all of the answers to every single law or every single question, but rather I'm going to invite you to wrestle with it. As we close out, let's focus in on kind of three major themes. Number one is holiness. If you're dealing with the book of Leviticus, you've got to deal with holiness. The idea that God's people are set apart from the rest of the world. And that's what so many of those rules about, okay, don't eat this, eat that, don't wear this, don't wear that. Like, it was about a symbol of separation from what was going on around them. Because in their day, there was a gravitational pull in their culture away from God and away from life and instead towards brokenness and harm and death. And it's the same way today. There is a gravitational pull in our culture that pulls us away from God. And holiness is the answer. Holiness is the idea of standing apart from that, not giving in to the gravitational pull. Leviticus 19.2 says, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And Peter, years and years later, is going to say that to a group of Christians who are persecuted in the Roman Empire. And he's going to quote that and say, in the middle of when you don't know what to do, when the world is going sideways, when the world is chaotic, you be holy. You be set apart. The other major theme is the idea of atonement or reconciliation. Atonement is actually, this is, this is just kind of a nerdy English moment, but in the English language, it just means at one meant. You had two things that were separated and pulled apart, and we're putting them back together and we're making them one. That's just what it means, at one. And in the sacrificial system, they've got their goats, right, that they're doing to get the atonement. But as we've already said, Jesus is called the Lamb of God. He's called the sacrifice. He's the one who died in our place to give us the right to become children of God. If you look at the priests in the book of Leviticus, they had to offer sacrifices for themselves before they could even go to offer sacrifices for the other people. And that is part of what makes Leviticus a relational book and a missional book because it's about the relationship with God and how that plays out in our relationship with others. And then the final one is the idea of priests. Now, maybe you have some experience with priests. There's a lot of, that word just really means someone who goes in between for like 
a, a deity and humans. There are lots of priests in lots of different cultures across all of the world. Now, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are a priest. Now, maybe you've got to think about that and go, okay, it's priests, saints, I've read about these things. I am not one of them. But the Bible would say you are, because as a follower of Jesus, we are ambassadors. We represent Christ in our workplace and in our homes and in our neighborhoods, where we go in between and point people towards Jesus. And so God told the nation of Israel they needed to be a kingdom of priests. He wanted them to be a community that as a community was a light shining to everyone around them to point them in the direction of God. And that's where I want to end for us today, that we should be a community that's a kingdom of priests, that we are a community where people look at our lives and they see that we are walking in integrity. They see that our love for God trumps everything else. They see that we are resisting the gravitational pull towards sin and towards brokenness in our world. So let's be a community of priests. Let's pray. Father God, we love you so much. We thank you that you made a way for us to be one with you, for us to be reconciled and brought back to you. God, we thank you for even some of the uncomfortable or challenging parts of your word. God, that your spirit would speak through your word in our lives this week. It is in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.